Hey folks, and welcome to Hey Adora, your queer Shira podcast. I'm Force Captain Meth, they them. And I am Princess Jenny, she her. And I'm uh, Sorcerer Sean, she they. Who's that extra voice in our room? What? Well, we have a special guest star today for our, our very, a very special episode. We're starting a really cool discussion on uh, race and S-pop with our friend, uh, Head Sorceress Sean. Give you guys a little bit about who, who our Head Sorceress is. Head Sorceress Sean is a playwright, an author, and a huge nerd. She's the creator and the facilitator of the Queer Women's Torah Workshop. Her debut collection of story poems, The Red Door, was a semi-finalist for the Kaveh Kanem Poetry Prize. It will soon be published by Ben Yehuda Press. Her nonfiction writing about living at the intersection of Black and Jewish has been featured in Tablet Magazine and Tribe Herald. She is currently developing Project Sitsum, inspired by the theater and role-playing games. Project Sitsum aims to create spaces for playing, dreaming, learning, and making within the Jewish world and beyond. Fuck yeah. Fuck yeah. So today, we are not discussing an episode. We have finished our first season, and we are diving into a super important topic that is very dear to all of our hearts, which is S-pop and race. Because yep. we haven't talked about race at all yet throughout the season. And it's not because it's not there. No, it's definitely there. So, and so we're just opening a dialogue just, today. Yeah, this is by no means going to be comprehensive. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we're, we're, here, to, we're here to learn and we're here to listen. Yes. So, Sean, do you have a starting point in mind where you'd like to jump in? <laughs> oh, wow. Um, hmm. I don't want to say I want to set things up, but I, I want to make clear to the audience that this is not going to be a racism 101 kind of discussion where, you know, well, what is white privilege and what is right. a microaggression? It's like, no, we're not going to do that. There's plenty of resources for that elsewhere. Right. What I'm here to do and what hopefully we'll be able to do um, as the episode goes on is that um, I'm interested in exploring how does race impact this or that thing? Which mm -hmm. is a much more interesting and you know open kind of yes. conversation. Totally, um, yeah. And, you know, and it's like I'm not really interested in this. You know, trying to adjudicate whether well, is it racist to do blackface? It's like uh, yes. So <laughs> and you know, also those yes yeah. or no questions don't lead anywhere. Yeah, right. They don't, they don't right. lead anywhere, and they don't get people to get get introspective or to even make up their own minds about how they feel things. Because you know, I'm just one person. Mm -hmm. People right. may experience something you know a lot of people may experience something very differently from me and that's all valid mm -hmm. so you know just making space for that is yeah you know is, is i think important absolutely so i guess from here i guess um one of the things i really wanted to talk about was like the uh speaking of the show itself was the racial paradox of etheria oh i love this all right okay but here here is the racial paradox etheria has many people it, you know, it's populated by many people with a multitude of skin colors and physical features that do not exist in our world. Mm -hmm. Right. You know how when whenever a topic about racism comes up, people say, I don't care if you rake, I don't care if you're green, blue, or purple. Like, there are yep. literal green, blue, yep. and purple people in this world. Yes. Right, right. <laughs> um, and there are lizard people, and there are people with horns and people with tails. There are people with exoskeletons. It's It, it runs the gamut. Right. <laughs> and so Etheria is functionally race-free. <laughs> functionally race shouldn't exist in a theory right in mm -hmm. theory in theory but the society that made the show is definitely not race free i mean this is yes. an american show with american creators aimed at an american audience and and you can't escape that mm -hmm. and if you're you know attuned to these things you're put in this weird 
paradoxical space um, because the show presents Etheria as race blind, but you know the American creative team has biases and blind spots and unquestioned assumptions, and it does show up in the work. Mm-hmm. And the same is true of the fandom. So right. yeah, um, that's what I wrote down, I guess. Yeah, um, that reminds me a lot. I was just sick this whole past week, and I've been mindlessly rewatching old reruns of Star Trek: The Next Generation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because you know it's something from my childhood that I haven't watched in so long that it's like practically new again. And it's very obvious. And, you know, watching it as an adult now, it's so much more, even though I'm not saying I don't still love this show, it's a product of its time, just like everything and a product of its culture. So even though they're presenting this incredibly evolved utopian view of the future of the human race being no war, no poverty, no racism, but it's still so clearly situated in a very white cultural headspace. Like everything about the show is incredibly white. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but mm-hmm. they're saying that, but they're trying to imagine a future where we have gotten past all these issues, but we are not there. We are creating this cultural product in this time and in this space. Mm-hmm. And in, in some ways, that is so much more reflective of how we view these things than mm-hmm. just an average sitcom would be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, agreed. Agreed. And I think I think something that both as Papa and, you know, Star Trek and every fucking show I can think of. Right. Any sci-fi like, series could sub in for that. Yeah. Star Trek comes from a, a like a white heterosexual male perspective too. Oh, yeah. Like there is the white heterosexual male perspective. Whereas S pop comes from the perspective of ostensibly like, you know, at the time, um, there was an all women writing, you know, all women creative team, mostly white creative team, and, you know, not particularly heterosexual. That being said, the diversity of, you know, racial voice in the writing room, not so much. And that I totally see, you know, Sean, what you're saying about like, that would absolutely, you know, it's the, um, it's the, it's the, 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 the fertile earth where the, you know, where this grows from, right? Like, yes, we have a group of white people trying to imagine a race blind, race utopia society. Right. Yeah. But you don't have any actual diversity of voices in the room to exactly. imagine or shape what that would look like. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like um these like the certs one old thing, one new thing that I'm that I was trying to get into. Like when you when you talk about Star Trek, mm-hmm. okay, the new Wheel of Time thing on Amazon Prime. And the whole, the weird gender stuff that I'm trying to- I haven't to... seen that. I haven't seen it either. And I really want to. But so the, the something old, something new, you're, mm-hmm. you're saying that the wheel of time thing is sort of subbing into that same space. Kind of, like for me, kind of, it's not, mm-hmm. you know, I guess, necessarily as a black person, because I don't know, I haven't read the books. I tried, it was too much of a slog to get through the first 10 pages. Mm-hmm. So I just like, nope. <laughs> and I nope right out of there. Now the TV show is here. Mm-hmm. And I did play the role-playing game when Wizards of the Coast put it out all those years ago. Mm-hmm. So I don't know anything about it. And I'm assuming yeah. there's audience members who also yeah. don't. Right. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's hard to... It's like this... I can't remember everything. It's just, I just don't have a... So what I know about the conceit of it is essentially like, it's it was pitched to me, shown to me, and please, anybody, if I'm wrong, write in, that it is like a women-centric society where only women have access to magic, but it's written by men. Got it. Yeah, that, that seems to sum Ish. it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah that, that speaks volumes. Yeah. yeah. So I could see how like, you know, back, it was written by Robert Jordan and it was written 
I think the first book came out in 1990 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So like the you know, it's once again like you know, it's from it's from from that fertile earth. So that's the old, but I don't have any exposure to the new. So when you're saying like old to the new, like what does the new feel like? Like what's going on with that? I don't know. I keep falling asleep on it <laughs> because the main <laughs> character is this bland white dude, and I can't uh -huh. stand him. So <laughs> why like, are you putting yourself through it at all? <laughs> I just. I want to be like conversant in it at least. Yeah, yeah. fair. And I, the glimpses I've seen of these amazing, complex, badass women of color, and then mm -hmm. it's like back to the bland white lead. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. yeah. I'm like, why couldn't the show be about her? Right. <laughs> I'm thinking the whole time. But yeah, and there's another thing. I'm currently reading through Dune by Frank Herbert. Oh, Dune. <laughs> that one's rich. <laughs> yes. And it's, one of those, again, this was written in 1965, I think. So this is the mm -hmm. 60s. Mm -hmm. And the basic the basic idea is that it's far future interstellar feudalism. Mm -hmm. All right. And this major house, the emperor of this galactic empire, sends this major house slash rival house to this desert planet where water is so precious that people reuse things like spit. And their whole thing is like they have to harvest this, this thing called the Spice Melange, which powers their intergalactic travel. So they're given, ostensibly given control over this vital resource. Mm -hmm. But of course, there's political machinations. The literal phrase in the book is plans within plans within plans. So there's a lot of complex political stuff going on and it touches on things like religion and prophecy and whatnot. So mm -hmm. yeah, I'm about halfway through. <laughs> yeah, but there is a David Lynch movie if you really want to look at it that involves Sting and the- Oh, yeah, but okay. Those but weird panties. Those, yo, okay, but like seriously, there's definitely, like I definitely know people that like watched that movie when they were very young and got really specific like kinks because of Sting's outfit, like, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I haven't seen it. I would love to see a picture of Sting's outfit. Uh, we can definitely post a picture of Sting. It's he's wearing Let's do like that. a weird like loincloth diaper thing, and he fights like with a knife. Oh, that and... doesn't sound that sexy to me. I mean, <laughs> it's fine. I'm just curious. I mean, he's like he's like a good looking dude. Oh yeah, whatever. I know. Yeah. I can imagine plenty of people yeah. getting kinky for Sting. Yeah, yeah. kinky for Sting. Yeah, and it's and again, no doubt. It's, it's like, and I'm reading this, and I'm like. You know, try to keep in mind, this is a dude writing in the 60s, a white mm -hmm. dude writing in the 60s. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the stuff that we pay attention to in a representation of like people of color and whatnot, it's, uh, how should we say, it comes off as a little tone deaf. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yet, in the text itself, there's not, it's kind of weird. You ever seen or read a work where the work itself was be probably beyond where the author was, consciousness-wise? Yeah, I think I understand that. Yeah, yeah. so it's like, it, it's more forward thinking than people would assume for right. work written in the 60s. Right. Yeah. Right. So it doesn't show its age quite as much. Yeah. I think it's really interesting. But kind of, it, do, it does kind of segue to the next thing I want to talk about. Um, awesome. Which is like, speaking of Dune, which was way more diverse than people assume it was. Like the, the mm -hmm. world itself, way more brown people and black people than people thought there were. The question that I, I like wrote down here is why does Etheria seem or feel so white? Right. Um, because again, literal blue, green, and purple people. <laughs> and most of the names- And black people. Yeah, and black people. And most of the named humanoids in Etheria 
are visibly black or brown. You know, a lot of them are ethnically mm-hmm. or racially ambiguous or blatantly fantastical. Mm-hmm. But I think was it you, Jenny, or someone else who said that Ethereum is kind of white, or or someone else brought up Ethereum being kind of white. I don't know if it was me. I have certainly thought that it's obvious culturally that all of the writers are white. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that the characters of color aren't fully fledged characters right. or in any anything like that. Yeah. And the thing I was thinking about was like Etheria is effectively a monoculture. Right. There's no oh, yeah. significant cultural distinctions at all. Like everybody speaks standard American English with no accent. There are no substantial differences in like in the way people live or how the environment shapes their lives. All their differences are purely cosmetic. You know, it, it, it's literally skin deep. Yeah. So it comes off as kind of generic and which means that everyone acts like suburban white people. Um, so, and, and the social norms, they're very, they're very waspy. I mean, there's an actual prom and it's like, that is such a distinctively, I don't want to say white America because that's an America thing. They have proms in sure, black sure. neighborhoods too, but, but that, but like the prominence that it takes, you know, is, is distinctly, distinctly yeah. waspy. Sure, yeah. and like the the um the texts that it was pulling from are mm-hmm. are very dis. I mean, it was pulling from John Hughes movies, right? right. Like, yeah, the, some of the whitest movies you'll ever see, and Jane Austen novels. You know, right. that's right. So, and like these are very Europe, you know, you know, Eurocentric and you know, white American centric texts mm-hmm. that are presented. In like, you know, kind of like, a, you know, American culture as cultural classics. Like Jane Austen is literally one of the classics. John Hughes movies often make like 100 movie best movies of all time, like understood to be cultural touchstones. But they mm-hmm. are cultural touchstones that are representative of very particular kinds of whiteness. Right. Exactly. Right. Right. Exactly. Right. The universal experience on Etheria is drawn from, from very white sources. Yes. Right. Yeah, Absolutely. And we like we can compare Etheria to say Wakanda. Yes, oh, I yes. love this. Now Wakanda is physically much smaller than Etheria. Um, it's a small country in yes, Eastern Africa. Yes, it's not a planet. No, it's not a planet. It's a small country in Eastern Africa, and everybody's black. But each of those peoples who live there have they're very distinct. Like the different tribes that live there, like the yeah. Panther tribe, the River tribe, the Border tribe, the Jabari the yep. Dormilaje and so on and so forth. It's like, and you see them like visually, they're visually very distinct yes. and they're culturally very distinct. Like the Jabari do not behave the same way as like the border tribe or the Panther right. tribe. And it's like- It's not a monoculture. It has very clear cultural yeah, differences. Yeah, it is not a monoculture at all. Yeah, very, very obvious. And it's like, and yes, everybody's literally black. Um, yeah. You know, it, it's, you know, it's, it's certainly not like a, generic watered down version of urban black American culture. Mm-hmm. And so I, I guess the question I want to put to everyone else is like, what do you think is the effect of having Ethereum be this monoculture that draws from a very specific white American perspective? Like what's the effect on the work itself or and the representation of race? I feel like it definitely res- like reflects what you were saying earlier. It feels white and it feels the, 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 I, I love the idea of it being a monoculture because we do see, you're right, when we go to, you know, Elberon or we go to the Kingdom of Snows or we go to, you know, Plumeria. Yes, these, they all do have these particular kind of like cultural understandings, but you're right. They are very cosmetic. Like there's still the princesses and there's still the She-Ra and there's still, and these aren't like unifying 
cultural touchstones. It's Yeah, they all have the same culture. They don't have any trouble relating to each other across cultural lines. Exactly. There are no real cultural distinctions yeah. that ever make any of them feel out of place in one area versus a different area of Etheria. Except for maybe needing a needing a coat or like having to like hippies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know. Listen to kale chips. <laughs> Yo, I mean, Jenny and I do love yes. our party kale, you know? The party kale is... Yeah, yeah. but aside from okay. maybe um, when... Oh, fuck. I'm losing points right now. Um, what's the desert where they find Gina Davis? The Crimson Waste. The Crimson Waste. The Crimson Waste. The desert, <laughs> the desert where they find the Gina Davis. Waste. Aside from the Crimson Waste, there are no real cultural distinctions that would make any one Ethereum feel out of place anywhere else in Ethereum other than where they are from. Well, in the Horde. Oh, we'll get to that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that I figured whole, we're going to yes, get to that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, but those are two really specific, you know, like the Horde, yeah. as we are a fully spoiled podcast and we're looking at this all at once, we know that the Horde came from space and then they assimilated Ethereans into their society. And then mm -hmm. the Crimson Waste, I think, is the only naturally occurring part of Etheria that has cultural differences from the rest. It just occurred to me. I don't have like and an agenda on where I'm going yeah. with this point. And they're right. criminalized. That's right. Yeah. That's a good point. And then there's the fact that, like, Horde Prime and his uh, clones, they're literally a bunch of white dudes. They're all the same white dude over <laughs> and over and over and over, which is the most terrifying thing of all. Yeah. And Horde Prime's a white dude with dreads. That's right. Yeah. That's right. That's why you know you hate it. That's uh -huh. why you know you mm -hmm. hate him. Exactly. <laughs> He's like, oh, and he has three eyes on one side for no reason. Yeah. That's just... Unnecessary yeah. is flair. His, is his voice actor black? Yes. Is his voice yes. actor black or am I thinking of something else? Okay. Keston John is black, yeah. And he's he okay. played Cheaty's best friend on The Good Place. Oh. Ah, oh, Cheaty. <laughs> oh, I know Cheaty. God bless. I love The Good Place. Or Cheaty. Like, I would not want to put Cheaty in this environment. No, he would absolutely melt down and have an ulcer. Oh God, he would. Yes. Anyway. <laughs> Back to Etheria. <laughs> so yeah. there was one article that you sent us to read. Do you want to tell tell the listeners a little bit about that? I have the post. I've just pulled up the post I made. Um, so, well, first of all, uh, let me describe the characters I'm talking about. Awesome. These are female characters of color in two different shows that are distinctly not nice. Um, we have um, Regina Mills, who was the evil queen in Disney Snow White, who was portrayed by Lana Parilla, who is a Latina actress, Puerto Rican from Brooklyn. <laughs> in the show Once Upon a Time, though. Right, ABC's Once Upon a Time. Um, now, Azula is a character in Avatar The Last Airbender. She's the princess of the Fire Nation and the prodigious firebender and like a military, like a genius of a military strategist. Yep. She's, she's the girl with all the gifts. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yes. how I would describe her. Um, but she has a mean streak. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Slightly understated, but uh, yes. Yeah. The post I wrote about uh, these two characters is, you know, Regina, Azula, and Fana's inability to recognize trauma as trauma in women and girls of color. Mm -hmm. And what I said was I started getting an icky feeling based on the ways people were just diagnosing them with personality disorders and kind of ignoring the role their environment played in shaping who they are. You know, like, because what both of these characters have in common is that they were trapped and isolated in toxic environments when they, when they were at their most vulnerable, mm -hmm. like, like since they were children. Mm -hmm. 
And often fandom tended to gloss over all that to focus on how maladjusted they are. Mm-hmm. And, and there's some surface level acknowledgement that something bad happened to them, but there's no real acknowledgement of the gravity of what they were dealing They're with. They're just bad people, basically. Just, yeah. Yeah. And like exacerbating all that is the fact that both of these characters are powerful and aggressive mm. in a way that deviates from what's demanded of women and people of color from, by patriarchy and whiteness. And, and let's say heteronormativity because the queer coding is heavy with both of them. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. Azul's girls, you know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> or yeah. the ep- what is it? The episode, the... um, um... The beach. The beach. Thank you. Yeah. The beach oh, episode. Yes, yes. Where like the guys hit on her and she's just like... It's kind of played off comedy like, but it's like she does not give a fuck about these dudes. She doesn't even understand that they're hitting on her or why. She doesn't understand why or dudes. What's happening? Right? Yeah. Right. Like, and all of her focus is on her female best friend. Yeah, exactly. It's her female best friend. Yeah, yeah. Who's in a very, I don't know how they snuck this past the censors kind of outfit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But okay. And also, don't a lot of people ship Regina and. And Emma Swan, yes, they yes, do. Yes, yes, yes. Swan Queen is the uh, art. Right. I've never seen a femme slash ship take off like that. Right. So I, they both have I a lot of that. queer implications, and they're both very yes. powerful women of color who yeah. don't behave and who are, yeah. you know, portrayed as aggressive. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and again, in both of them, like in both fandoms, it, it, it was kind of rampant. They get tacked on with evil mm-hmm. or crazy, mm-hmm. which is the one of the classic lesbian tropes also. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even yeah. before you add race into it. Yeah. And so, you know, and it's like, okay, fictional characters is one thing, but then it's like, but then you know how fiction can help us learn like how to empathize with people who are different from us. And it's like, right. and then you look at what happens to queer women of color in the real world. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh, so this is where we get the thing where doctors don't think that black people feel pain. Yep. Right. As intensely as white people. Or that you know, things that I'm not going to discuss at length here that happen to other girls and women happen to black girls and women. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly. I'm going to drop the name R. Kelly and leave it at that. Yep. Yep. There's, the, you know, not even in, in that sense, but it's like that the women and girls of color welcome that treatment or, mm. or well, she can take it kind of thing. Right. Or they're mm-hmm. impervious to it somehow. Yeah. Or they're right. impervious to it. Yep. And, and it goes back and it's very, and this stuff is really deep because it goes all the way back to like even slavery where they thought that black women were not as attached to their children. Mm-hmm. So selling them to who knows where, you know, it's not that devastating. Right. Right. Shouldn't be right. that big and of a deal. Yeah, it shouldn't be that big of a deal. It's just like, you know, taking a dog's puppies away from them. That was something right. like that. All these methods of dehumanization, yeah. basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they're completely dehumanized because they don't behave, even though... You know, all the research says that aggression is a trauma response. That, exactly. You know, that like, wait a minute, let's look at the environment they were raised in. You have one person who was on screen physically abused magically. Mm-hmm. And it's clearly, and the way she responds makes it clear this has happened many, many times. Yep. Somehow she's supposed to be, you know, well-adjusted as a result of this with no support no community, no right. no help at all. Mm-hmm. And when she lashes out at the world, it's seen as a reflection of who she is rather than a reflection of what's done to yeah. her. Yeah. So, yeah. So, we, wait, are we talking about Catra now, too? I know, I was going to say, do we need to even say <laughs> right? that all of this like, relates heavily to Catra? You know, and how a lot of, like, in fandom, like, in, you know, Catra is coded in a lot of places as a woman of color. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I guess I kind of want to know, like, how we can apply this to to Catcher because there is there are so many ways in which she is shown as animalistic, mm-hmm. yeah. And regardless of the fact of how horribly she was abused, even though we've seen the evidence of it, mm-hmm. that you know she is evil, she is bad, right? Right? Yeah. And you see evidence of that, and it's sort of like, on the one hand, you want to be like, yay, representation. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, crap. Right, right, yeah. And I'm like, okay, do we need more media that portrays women of color as animalistic right. or, yeah. you know, less rational? <laughs> um, because I think, um, and I think if you're a fan of, you know, I think about some people really... And I don't necessarily think they mean anything by it because, you know, they have their cat girl thing mm-hmm. um, really lean into the cat girl thing. And it can be kind of, it can leave a bad taste in, in my mouth Yeah. Um, when I see it. Because, you know, despite all this evidence that Catra is a three-dimensional character, that she's not just this, you know, that her cat girl appearance notwithstanding, she's a fully a complex and nuanced and fully fleshed out person absolutely mm-hmm. yeah yeah it, and it's very obvious like the the uh, environmental factors that shape who she is in fact if you said that pattern still emerges where it's kind of like well yeah she was abused but right mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. yeah shadow weevil was awful but and it's like no y'all but it's what? like the, yeah yeah it's yeah. like with any other character uh, okay i'm gonna bring up another fandom and you're probably gonna roll your eyes okay and i apologize in advance Let's hear Star it. Star Wars and Kylo Ren. Duh. Star Wars and what? <laughs> yeah. yo, Kylo I Ren. Yo, I cannot stand Kylo Ren, but that's that's. <laughs> these the. I'm gonna have to the, take a seat on the sidelines for this one. The villain of the sequel trilogy. Yeah. More or less. Mm-hmm. We're gonna ignore that third movie. <laughs> um, we're gonna ignore that. Ugh. Yes, please. Okay. Okay. You remember? Okay. The the original trilogy of Star Wars, Farm Boy. Luke Skywalker goes, joins the rebellion against the evil galactic empire to follow in his father's footsteps so he could be a Jedi, a.k.a. Space Wizard with a laser sword. A.k.a. Space space Wizard? Space Wizard with the laser Vision. sword. Yes. That is going to be the yes. name of my next album, by the way. Space Wizard. Okay. With a laser sword. Love it. Love it. He, he becomes a space wizard with the laser sword, discovers that the mailed fist of the galactic empire is his father. <gasps> his yes. father. Who, yeah, who fell to the dark side. Right. Went, went from hero to villain. Right. And started choking people with his mind. <laughs> right. And his his evil presence is very clearly voiced by a Black actor. Yeah. But James Earl Jones is awesome in this role. He's fantastic. <laughs> like, he's fantastic. But it's James Earl Jones. No, no, no. I mean, I love James Earl Jones. And yeah. he, he's wonderful. But I'm saying, like, these are... It's not a black and white situation where we're saying, well, this representation is bad and therefore the whole thing is trash. It's just you have to take notice of the way these portrayals of good and bad are shaped. Yep. Right. We're going to ignore that part, that that pale guy underneath. I know, right? (laughs) Who doesn't look like he sounds like that. He looks like the bad guy from Bad Girls, (laughs) the episode of Buffy. Yeah, he totally does. Season Faith, where Buffy and Faith stumble upon the giant baddie in the hot tub. By, like by the way, by the way, folks, if you are playing the Hey Adora drinking game, which is take a drink of soda every single time Jenny or I bring up either Buffy or Buffy Season Faith, this is when you would take a drink. Mm-hmm. That's a fun game. <laughs> yeah. That is a fun yeah. game. Okay, so there's that going on. 
blonde haired blue eyed Luke Skywalker saving the universe by uh, bringing his father back to the light. Vader dies. And the sequel trilogy picks up 30 years later, roughly. So in the new, in the sequel trilogy, the new villain is a, a man who calls himself Kylo Ren, who is Darth Vader's grandson, and thus the son of Han Solo and Leia Organa. Like in the original series, Han Solo was a smuggler who acted like a jerk, but had a heart of gold. And he had a great outfit too. <laughs> yeah, he's really good with the blaster. He's really good, really with, good blaster. with the blaster. Yep. And he shot first. And he shot first. <laughs> He's sort of the morally gray bad guy with a heart of gold yeah. type type of yeah. situation. He's, he's not even bad. He's 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 bad at being bad. He's roguish. <laughs> yeah, he's roguish. That's a much better yeah. word. Yeah, he's a scoundrel. That's the it's word. A scoundrel. Yeah. There so in theory, as again, as someone who doesn't know the text, the son of Han Solo and Leia, whatever her mm-hmm. official last name is, should be white because they're both white. Yeah, and Adam Driver plays him. So. Yeah. So yeah, so yeah, he's white. That checks out. <laughs> is white, <laughs> and he's a total Vader fanboy. And that, and the sequel trilogy has many issues with the writing and storytelling. So a lot of basic things are really not clear. So his whole thing was to finish what Vader started. I have no idea what he means by that. So he's the bad guy. He is. Imagine a and I and I hate to bring this up because this is kind of kind of a national trauma wound that I'm going to bring up, but imagine one of those neo-fascist Columbine guys. Yep. Yeah. With telekinesis, mind control, and a laser sword. Yeah. That's pretty scary. And rage issues up the wazoo. Yeah. He sucks ass. That's pretty scary. (laughs) Yeah. He's like, he is a a villain for the 21st century. Exactly. Like, if they leaned into... We need a whole other podcast for my complaints about this and how they didn't lean into the white male rage element. Yeah. But, and I'm saying this, this is a guy who murdered his own father when his father was just wanted to bring him home. He was definitely party to the kidnapping and brainwashing of countless people to turn them into stormtroopers. He was also, um, he didn't pull the trigger but he knew about the plan, didn't do anything to stop it, and watched it happen. When the new evil empire called the First Order blew up several planets. Okay, star in the original Star Wars trilogy, the Death Star can de- could destroy one planet. Star Killer Base destroyed several. It's a lot of it's a lot of destruction. It's yeah. a lot of genocide. Yeah. yeah. Fair amount. Fair amount of genocide. You know, he, he pretty much definitely crossed the moral event horizon yeah. as of that film. It's yeah. like, yeah. bringing him back from that would be very difficult. Yeah. Worse than Thanos. Yeah. yeah. At least on level he, with Thanos. Right. The female Lee Ray, um, he captures her and tries to invade her mind. He, yeah, and he is completely horrible to his subordinates. You know, and it's like, I'm trying to look for a redeeming quality here. Yeah. And I can't find it because yeah. it's just everything about him is like this huge, raging, egotistical entitlement. And it's like, ugh. It, it, it sounds like ugh. a realistic, scary white guy to me. Yeah, he is. Yeah, he, he is. is. And he's he just, ugh. Mm-hmm. And fandom falls over this dude like so you won't believe. Really? Yes. And they're yes. like, 
That's he's, gross. He deserves redemption. All of this shit, and it's like, but you're you're not going to extend this to like Azula, Azula. or no. Katra, you know? Right, right. Yeah. Literal teenagers. Like, yeah. He's like thirty. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and on top of that, they whoopify him. Whoop it, let, let's, okay, they whoopify, whoopify him. <laughs> yes, they whoopify him. And whoopifying for those listening who aren't familiar is when you take a character and completely turn them into this marshmallow of a person version of themselves oh like whoopee <laughs> it's like it's not even it's not necessarily a good thing it's like you scrub away all their right. rough edges right you right. soften all their flaws it's an idealized version yeah that no, doesn't, it, it that like, glosses over all the realities of the flaws yeah it's like they turn him to this soft boy type thing mm-hmm. oh he was a sweet sensitive boy yeah. until snoke got him yeah wounded the the wounded wounded angry boy you know if only you know he just he's the wounded bad boy right if only somebody was just there to love him like Like zuko meanwhile yeah yeah but zuko had but zuko earns his redemption yeah zuko sought redemption of course and he really really worked for it and he you know didn't carry out these horrific genocidal acts and he's 16 yes yeah and he's 16 yeah he's not 30 he's not and the thing is they do that and then make Finn, the person kidnapped from his family, who, you know, a family he doesn't even know. It's like, gee, why, why did you just kick me in the intergenerational trauma of slavery? Why don't you, mm-hmm. you know, take it from his family, had his, whatever original name he has, we'll never know it, and give it a number instead of a name. And brainwashed his entire childhood to follow orders from the first order, mm-hmm. to kill without mercy. Mm-hmm. And he's the one they vilify. Mm-hmm. And I assume he's not white. No, he's oh, not. Oh, Finn is played by John Boyega. Yeah. Okay. Yep. Okay. Yep. Okay. Okay. Yep. Definitely not white. Definitely okay. not white. Okay. Definitely not white. Yeah. So, you know, these are some pretty clear, broad, broad sweeping paint strokes that emerge. Yeah. Right. And so, like, to kind of segue in, it's like, I know it's a lot. We haven't specifically talked about she yet. But we're getting there. Yeah, hopefully people can see some of these parallels already. Yeah, so you can already see it kind of happening with Catra. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where it's like, and you have a combination of factors going on here. It's like, how old is Catra canon? Like, how old is Catra in this show? Uh, I think she starts at 17 or 18 and goes to 20 or 21. The show goes over the course of three years. Yeah, I think that's right. Late teens to early adulthood. Late teens to early adulthood, yeah. Okay. A kid. Yeah. Yeah. So... (laughs) And then you have the confluence of all the same things that we're seeing here. You're having this young person in this toxic environment, clearly traumatized. Mm-hmm. Constantly abused. Constantly abused and not really given options. Mm-hmm. You know, isolated and not given options. And no real positive adult influences. And again, and it's something that happens too, where it's like, okay, she's treated as older than she is. Yes. Mm-hmm. And more mm-hmm. culpable than she is. Yes. Mm-hmm. And her trauma is kind of, is minimized in favor of Adora in a way. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, like when people look at how Adora acts, they understand, they clearly understand it's a result, it's a reaction to trauma. Whereas right. with Katra, it's a result of something rotten inside her or something mis, you, right. know, ma- right. you know, malfunctioning inside of her. Right. And not, wait a minute, this is a direct result of trauma. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, I don't want to say even more than I don't want to be like, well, her trauma was worse. I'm not saying that, but it's kind of interesting the way that Adora's trauma is taken more seriously. Yeah, and I think it might be important to 
to qualify at this point that we're not necessarily, these are not universally agreed upon perceptions no. because no, they are yes. perceptions and yes. nobody can ever say that any perception is universal. Yes. Um, Cause of course I never perceived catcher that way, but I know Same. that I don't stand for the entire pop culture consciousness and awareness of, you know, these dynamics. Right. Um, I feel like there are, you know, there are things within the text that don't lean towards that. That being said, everybody pulls what they want from yeah. the text. And I've seen a lot of this for Catra. Yeah, I've certainly seen it in, in the fandom. And that's why it's yes. important to talk yes. about it. Agreed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, of course, they do that thing where it's like, it's not about race. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yep. No, it's, it's just she's a tox. She's toxic. It's like shut up. <laughs> There's exactly it's the idea that you know the rotten, the bad egg, the rotten seed. Yeah, right. She's toxic and abusive, right? And you know for no reason. Yeah, for no reason. Or else they put it side by side and they say, well, you know, Adora didn't become evil because she was abused, and it's like, well, their abuse was very different. Mm -hmm. right. They were abused mm -hmm. side by side in different ways that were highly manipulative, and mm -hmm. everyone's responses to trauma is different. Fight or flight. Everyone knows fight or flight. They're both equally mm -hmm. valid responses to mm -hmm. trauma. Mm -hmm. Or freeze. <laughs> yeah. 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 And oftentimes Catra does freeze. Yep. Okay. Granted, Shadow Weaver was physically, magically manipulating her to do that. But yeah. Yeah. E even if it's not your free will, the embodiment of that response is happening. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, Catra does disassociate multiple times. Yes. That's throughout right. the series. Yeah. We've seen that. I rewatched Once Upon a Time in the Waste a couple of days ago, um, mostly because Catra in a leather jacket and a sword is sexy. Of course. Because, um, you know, everybody loves that. But the scene where she goes in to speak with Adora and, you know, they're doing the whole Buffy face sexual tension stuff until Adora mentions that Shadow Weaver is in Bright Moon. And then you see... yes catcher disassociate yes and mm -hmm. they do it with you know the color and they do it with you know the the focus on on her eyes and then they do it with beautifully with the sound design of it mm -hmm. where like you get like this complete washout and then like you you know almost kind of almost like a buzzing until we get to you know scorpio's voice kind of fading in slowly mm -hmm. um you can feel the shock of that yeah. revelation yeah. to yeah. her yeah yeah and it's like with Adora, for instance, I think most of Fana would they that's absolutely a PTSD type of response. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Know, like, oh, she's, you know, I don't want to say flashbacks because that's not exactly what's happening in that scene, but like with the disassociation, it's like, yeah, that's that's trauma. Mm -hmm. And with Katra, there have been people who said, oh, look how crazy she is, you know, yeah, right. as yeah. opposed to that. Yeah. And it's like it's like, really? And it's like, well, how can it be racist if she's a cat person? And it's like, well... You know. <laughs> <laughs> the, these characters are representations of real people that we can relate to. And also, She's not uh, really yeah, a cat yeah. girl from another planet called Etheria. Yeah, and, right. and uh, Sean, I think you mentioned in a conversation that we were having um, kind of in one of our chats, uh, and this is a conversation that I've had with other folks, too, about kind of how in fantasy worlds, and I think you mentioned earlier today, how in fantasy worlds, um, you know, people of color are, you know, presented as, you know, hybrid people, essentially, cat people or dog people or whatever. And that is kind of also part of the coding. And it's also within itself showing, and I'm trying to, Sean, you said something really awesome. And I don't want to like, screw up what you said, but like, you said it like, 
Did I say that like today or in the chat? It something? was in the chat like when we first started talking. Oh dear. Um, I was just thinking about this again this past week. Um, I was super sick. I was fevery. I wanted something random in the background and I was watching Star Trek. And I noticed for the first time, because I'm watching it as an adult, that the Klingons are all black people. And those mm-hmm. are the aggressive, hostile, yeah. you know, great warriors, easily mm-hmm. offended, you know, mm-hmm. takes takes harsh action, you know, sort of like without yeah. having full information. Like the second you're offended, right. I'm going to blow up your ship. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. And there are no white Klingons. They are clearly, you know, a, a very um, monochromatic race as a whole planet. Right. But speaking of which, it's kind of interesting to note that in the Star Trek films, Klingon major characters were played by white actors. There yes. was Christopher Lloyd in uh, Star Trek Three, mm-hmm. and um, what's his name, Christopher Plummer, and I think the sixth one. Yes. They go real heavy on that bronzer. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> they picked some white dudes to play them. Yeah. Too. yeah exactly. <laughs> um, so, uh, uh, Sean, I found what you said, and it, it, you know, it is very tied into what we've been saying, but it's kind of more of a, like, nose on the head with Catra, which is, how does Catra's portrayal as a literal cat person connect to attitudes about women of color being more animalistic? And I feel like yes. that flows from what we're talking about with you know, understandings of women of colors experiences with trauma into this, this is like kind of the higher level thing of portrayal of somebody that is understood to be a woman of color as animalistic. Yeah. And when you think about, I mean, I could be wrong about this and please um, tell me if you disagree. I, in broad strokes, when you think about the types of trauma that women of color are often subjected to, you don't have the luxury of choosing the flight response because there's nowhere to run to mm-hmm. if you don't stand your ground you're gonna die it's all gonna all be over mm-hmm. you know yeah so those are very obvious trauma responses mm-hmm. um in those environments specifically mm-hmm. right yeah yeah it's just like um Katra's displays of aggression is interpreted as who she is mm-hmm. that is also extrapolated to how women of color are mm-hmm. that's where you get the mm-hmm. The angry black woman or like the spicy Latina, you know, mm-hmm. the, the way right. you get like where these very human natural responses to extreme traumatizing circumstances. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's then twisted around and made like a, it's, it's, it's almost like I think I'm, I'm on Twitter I asked something where it's like, does it seem to everybody else that white America does Darvo on black people? Um, which is like a, and it's a term, Darvo is an acronym. Um, this term for um, like uh, if you know what gaslighting is which is where people yes we do we have discussed gaslighting we definitely do <laughs> doubt your own sanity your yep. own perception yes yes, um, yes. Darvo is like um, a, a tactic that gaslighters use mm-hmm. and I think I think the, the first one is the D is deny mm-hmm. A for attack RV reverse victim O and offender mm. Yeah, so it's like deny that you're doing anything, then attack the other person, mm-hmm. reverse who's doing what to who. Yeah, and then that that becomes like it's, it's a completely different narrative. Yes, out of what actually happened. Yes, yes, similar to when an abuser wants to you know gaslight their abusee, and you know they just yeah. accuse you of what they are doing to you. Yes, yeah, and unfortunately, it tends to be very effective. Yes, <laughs> um, unless you specifically know what to do with it but like yeah because it's a huge head game 
yeah, it, it's, a, it's a heck of a heck game. And it's the same thing, like, not like just necessarily with these characters, but with, you know, women of color writ large. It's like, and I see something similar to bring it back, bring it back to Avatar. Go ahead, take your swig of soda. I'm just going to say I'm going to relate things back to Avatar. And once upon a time, <laughs> take that swig of soda. We love Avatar. We talk about Avatar a okay, lot too. Take that swig of soda. I'm going to say, because this is something that happens with Azula a lot. People accuse her of doing things that Zuko did. And they say, therefore, she's evil and crazy. Or they hold her responsible for things her father, Fire Lord Ozai, did. And, and Fire Lord Ozai is that complete monster, okay? Right. You don't burn your own kid's face for talking out of turn. Yeah, right. And, and, you know, it's, and that's, that's a clear thing right there. But then, you know, fandom does the same thing with her, where it's like, yeah, they, they accuse her of doing the things her father does. Like, and, you know, she doesn't, I guess, doesn't get an A. Well, I mean, listen, Azula does plenty of bad stuff. We don't need to pretend that's not true. Right. But the question is, how is it framed compared to other characters? And what do we, what is extrapolated about who she is? Right. Versus other characters. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it's just like this whole situation where I'm like, um, well, I can go on the tangent for this for like a really long time because I, I, I clearly got a lot of pent up issues about this and fandom's reaction to her. And it's like, well, why do you feel sorry for her? Because she's a child soldier and she didn't have a choice in any of this. Um, right. But Zuko, Zuko had a support system. Zuko was not systematically isolated from people. Right. <laughs> so I guess now we're going to segue into race and queerness and representation. Yes. So again, um, Etheria is a very interesting setting in this regard because Etheria, unlike virtually every society on earth, is a queer normative society. Mm-hmm. Yep. There is absolutely no compulsory heterosexuality. Yep. It's, it, you There's know, you can barely any heterosexuality, let yeah, alone compulsory. You can argue that no cis, there are no cishet characters on the show. You could actually make an argument for that. Yet, um, you could. We discussed the possibility that King Micah might be the one straight guy, but even that, there's no evidence. It's true. We just we just got that vibe. We got the vibe. <laughs> the anti-gaydar. The anti-gaydar. Yeah, it's like, okay, we okay, we see him at twelve or ten or how, however young he is, and then grown up. <laughs> so we don't know what happened no. in the intervening years. <laughs> true. That's why I said it's pure speculation. Mm. But yes. Etheria is a queer normative society. And so something I was thinking about when I was, as I was doing that, well, how does race impact our understanding of queerness? Right. Right? Because then, you know, you have to start thinking, like, so who shapes the norms of queerness? Um, right. Whose vocabulary do we use to identify ourselves and others? Mm-hmm. Um, who determines the aesthetics of queerness? Mm-hmm. Um, whose standards do we use to recognize queerness in ourselves and others? Um, and the example I came up with was queer coding. And I'm like, well, whose code is that? It's <laughs> um, a good question. Yeah. You know, who's not being seen when we're judging queerness by that standard? And like basically how our perceptions of queerness impacted by race. <laughs> um, that's the general question that, that I want to throw out there. Yeah. And the other one I want to kind of sort of delve into is how does race impact Shira's representation of queerness? Because in Etheria, there are, it's like I wrote here, there are no labels in Etheria, not for sexuality, not for ethnicity or race. Right. And I said that it reminds me of white people who believe that racism is noticing or pointing out that people are different. 
Right. So yeah. they say things like, well, if we just get rid of all the labels. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Right. Uh-huh. Or we all become the same color. Uh-huh. Right. 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 <laughs> and yeah. it's sort of like we're all really the same. The only problem is the labels. Right. That yeah. If we right. didn't have labels, that the problems that we have would cease to be. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. If we didn't notice anyone was different. <laughs> right. Like if you if you took out the vocabulary of race, we wouldn't notice. Right. Yeah. We yeah. wouldn't notice any of the cultural differences between us. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I wonder how you know how that and it goes back to that that first question is, why does Ethereum feel so white? Mm-hmm. So I, I guess I just want to throw this question to, to both of you mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> and get you both of you thinking about what do you think is happening with that, about race and queerness and how we, and who really shapes what queerness is. It's a really broad question. I know. <laughs> um, I feel like we need some, um, some sort of tangible starting place. All right. Something that you bring up a lot on the show, mm-hmm. the bisexual lighting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> who made that decision that that was bisexual lighting whoever instance? made all the flags i don't know who made yeah. the flags right so th- that's what i mean it's like who did that and well i mean are the, the the various rainbow flags that have now become like there's a specific one for each little queer niche every category has its own flag are those less recognized in some communities than others because i don't even know the answer to that well uh i think that with those are those are more niche and i hate saying let's expand it a little bit more but i'm saying it's like just the very act of this of describing those niches in those terms right right Right. just just having that question like (laughs) yeah like who decides like for instance um because it was something i was thinking about when i was thinking about like how i relate to my gender and the vocabulary we have doesn't describe me Hmm. the vocabulary of cis and trans doesn't describe me. Mm. Neither does non-binary. Mm-hmm. 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 Because my gender identity is kind of, it's this, I mean, yes, I'm a woman mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I'm assigned female at birth mm-hmm. and I identify as a woman strongly so and I'm resented when people call me Mr. So-and-so. Mm-hmm. But my, the feelings that I have and the, and the way I relate to that is not the way I'm told it's supposed to be. Hmm. And I'm not talking about like the broader world with the, with the cisgender straight people. It's, it's not even that, even within the queer community. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, these are the labels that you can choose from. And I'm like, these don't fit me. And, you know, for instance, so, and I look at like the, in, the queer Native American people and it's like they have their, like not all of them, of course, but the general, the broader umbrella term is two-spirit. Right. And that, is reflective not just of gender or sexuality but it also reflects you know race and ethnicity and that that grounding in that in that cultural milieu the terms of currently available to me are, you know i don't have anything like that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's like i yes i say lesbian but mm-hmm. that comes with its own expectations too right and a lot of those expectations have baked in understandings of of race, of class, yeah. of of the uh, sociological situation where the word lesbian was kind of cooked and constructed and how that within itself was kind of baked into, like, like the word lesbian was developed in it's Europe. It's a white word. It's a white word. It comes from Greece, from the Isle of Lesbos. Yeah, and using it comes from European understandings of right. sexuality. Like, exactly. you're, like sexologists codified sexuality, which within itself codifying these things is also comes from like the 
the way that it is codified comes from the very European, like, codification practices that were happening during the Victorian era. So, like, it all is kind of baked in with this sort of, like, whiteness. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And then it goes to that, and I hate to air dirty laundry here, it goes to that really weird, messed up place that sometimes happens in some communities of color. I'm making this very clear. Not all, not most. So where queerness is seen as a white thing. Yes. Right. I have seen that. It's certainly not universal, but I have seen it. I've experienced it. Um, having a partner that was black and having them be like, why are you, you know, for, it was two things. One, it was like, that gay shit is white shit. And why are you dating a white girl? So it was on, like, it was two things. And one, you know, one was indicative of the other, right? Well, of course, you're going to do that white shit, which is gay shit. So of course, you're going to date a white girl. Yeah. Never mind, like, the very long, rich history of Black queerness. Yeah, like, (laughs) and also just, like, the, like, historical, like, both the, like, the very complicated history of Black queerness in America and Black white queer culture uh, as appropriative of Black queer culture and Black Mm -hmm. queer culture being understood as an outsider culture where, you know, Right. white outsiders were able to go into but blacks were not able to enter into you know non-white outsider community uh, white non-outsider communities like and all of that shit um even going right now to like you know to drag terms drag terms mm-hmm. that come from ball you know ball culture which comes from ball culture yes i don't yeah. know what that means <laughs> it's like um well the people oh you mean like a ball is in like a costume ball like a fet, yeah. a giant party. Yeah. A party. Yes. 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 Yeah. Uh, the the film Paris is Burning, which is also problematic, uh, shows this particular culture of ball culture, which are um, it is a culture of uh, primarily, uh, I believe, believe it. You know, pr- I'll I'll speak for the text Paris is Burning because this is the this is a text that I can speak on of it. Um, Paris is Burning is a documentary that was made in the late '80s about um, ball culture in Harlem. Uh, it, it is specifically a culture of, in this, I believe, is Black and Latino uh, queer youth, and a lot of it is centered around drag and drag performance and gender performance, and a lot of things that we, you know, that are kind of, have been kind of assimilated into white drag spaces and white gay spaces and gay male spaces come directly from that culture. Like, read, you know, comes from you know, black queer culture, like the, you know, reading someone to filth or... Uh, what do you mean read? I don't even know what that means in this uh, context. Sure. So... A very thorough dressing down. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, okay, so I'm going to read you and then, you know, they're going to... Oh, okay. Right. Uh, you know, even like... Read shade. Read shade. Yeah, shade. Uh, like, throwing shade. Throwing shade. Um, uh, like, pretty much just like anything. I've definitely noticed that. Even though, like, honestly, I don't follow drag closely. As you're saying these things, I'm like, yes, this is very indicative of drag culture. And when I have watched white drag groups and communities 
enacting these things, I, I have definitely thought to myself before that this was appropriation of black culture. Well, I mean, even Just in even, passing, it's noticeable. I mean, who doesn't, you know, like, yes, queen, you know? Of like, course, yeah. of course. I mean, listen, it's America. We all borrow from each other's cultures. It's yeah, impossible but, not to. And But, but it's a question of credit. Well, it's a question mm-hmm. of credit and it's a question of who gets to borrow from whose culture and then who, you know, what is cultural exchange versus borrowing. And I mean, right. it's it's all, it's a confluence of all sorts of factors that really need to be examined with who has the power of course and you know who has the power of and where does the power come from so yeah and bringing it back to etheria this is still kind of a broad statement but one of the things that i sort of noticed and that i think is fairly obvious is that again like you have a room of white mostly queer writers Mm. um you know mostly female coded queer writers And clearly, you know, who want to be diverse, but Mm -hmm. this is a group of people whose point of view all centers from the same cultural base. And so when they create a queer world in Etheria, they're creating a queer white world in the same sense that if you're reading movie descriptions and you read one that says, you know, a lesbian couple in Idaho in the 1920s has this whatever, whatever, whatever story – you imagine that they're going to be white, and they probably are going to be. If well, they're not going to be white, it would have said a black lesbian couple or a Latina lesbian couple because whiteness is just invisible. Right. And, and it's, it's accepted. It's assumed unless proven otherwise. Yeah. That also speaks to like, you're, okay, so you're defining it as a lesbian couple, whereas if it was a heterosexual couple, it would be a couple in right. Idaho exactly. in the 1920s. So. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of something is. I don't know if you've checked out this um, Netflix series called Q Force. I watched it. I did not okay. watch it yet. I heard mixed reviews from folk, though. It, uh, I'll let Jenny give her impression, then I'll follow up with my impression, and then we tie it back to the theme. I of definitely want to hear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't really have strong feelings about it, honestly. Um, I could see what they were trying to do. I don't know whether they fully achieved it. You know, I'm not, I don't know. Um, yeah. Obviously, the there were some very large joking stereotypes, but that's the kind of show it is. It's a cartoon. It's an adult cartoon that's meant to be ridiculous. Right. Well, to for our listeners, Q Force is a Netflix adult cartoon about a team of queer spies. Like, like take all those spy tropes and make everybody queer. So you have the, the Wanda hacker. Sykes's character with her life with her wife Pam and all their friends. Yeah, yeah, that was funny yeah. and somewhat relatable. Yeah, so it's like I I, I don't want to discourage anyone from watching it because rah rah representation and all, mm-hmm. <laughs> as mm-hmm. well as you know sometimes you look at things that you're not crazy about just to just to kind of get a lay of the land is like just to have a sense of what's out there mm-hmm. and i look read it and it's like not read it i watched it and i was like i can tell that everybody working behind the scenes is a cis gay white dude <laughs> from it's from the nature of the jokes to the things i'm expected to find relatable and i'm like uh and even like some of the stuff with deb like there was a joke that was made um that i remember one joke that kind of like kind of made me sigh and roll my eyes and it was like deb tells uh the main character uh what's his name steve merriweather that he wouldn't last five minutes like you know you should try being a black woman and he's like oh i'd love to and i'm like yeah my reaction would would not be appropriate for this podcast (laughs) so 
so <laughs> you can so say like, what's on your mind. Okay. Yeah, I, please I, do. This is unfiltered. Please speak your mind. That's why you're here. I said, fuck you, dude. I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah. <laughs> it'll fuck you, dude. <laughs> it was just so, it, because it reminded me of that thing where uh, there was this article that went around and maybe, again, made me roll my eyes. I was like, oh, please shut the entire fuck up. Where like this cis, cis gay white dude was like, find your inner black woman or some shit. And I'm like, fuck you. Yeah. You find your inner black woman. Why don't you listen to a real black woman to understand what that even yeah. fucking means? Yeah. It's like, what, do you think it's a party all the time yeah. for, for, for black women here? It's like, the what? You- yeah. Those are the kinds of jokes that people make about groups that they are really reaching outside of their own experience. Yeah. But they, they don't realize that they're doing it. And in fact, this is maybe a tiny bit of a opening a can of worms, but I'm not going to open it all the way. Um, pivoting over to Dave Chappelle. I did mm. not watch The Closer. I saw a few clips from it during the controversy. And based on those clips, I was like, I'm not going to like this. Fuck this. So why should I watch it? And that was the end of it for me. I'm not delving into no. any deeper than that. But years ago, there have been other times when he, in passing, has poked fun at trans people in ways that made it very clear that he doesn't know any trans people. He's not part of mm. the queer community. Mm-hmm. And he made a joke once, and again, this was years ago, about something to the effect of, you know, black men in New York would actually be safer if they were trans because women don't get <laughs> beat up as much as black men. And I was like, fuck you, dude. Nobody uh, is less safe. Yeah. Also- Nobody is less safe than black trans women. And mm-hmm. you would know that if you were actually part of this community that you're making fun of, mm-hmm. but you're not. So it's not the mm-hmm. kind of poking fun that's based on familiarity. And, you know, the, the it's funny because it's true thing doesn't apply when you're talking mm-hmm. about shit that you actually don't understand. And it's very clear that you don't understand. Yeah. I do want to do a quick fact check. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. While all of the showrunners, all the executive producers, and all of the head writers of Q-Force are white, um, two credits to both Ira Madison III, who is incredible. Ira Madison is is incredible. And Liz uh, Liza Dye um, are both respectively a uh, identify as a male and a woman, a man and a woman, and they are both... um, Black writers. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, and Ira Madison the third uh, is also a queer black writer. Yes, they're both queer that black we, writers. That we know from other contexts. Okay, yeah. I wasn't. I don't know that one. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to drop in a uh, no. What do, does that mean? That you know, at the end of the day, whoever gets filtered through, because every mm-hmm. single episode always gets filtered through a showrunner, and it's always who's in charge of that, right? So while we do still, we do have two, you know, two black writers on the staff writing these things writing two mm-hmm. specific episodes that doesn't mean that those jokes aren't coming from everybody else in the writer's room all of the people you know that of are of course the showrunners you know like everybody that kind else. of tokenism doesn't necessarily affect real change exactly but i did want to yeah. drop in a quick fact check on that because i did remember ira madison talking about it and i did remember um liza die talking about it too so yes i remember ira madison talking about it i'm glad you brought that up yeah it's so yeah to bring it back to she wrote and Ethereum. Okay, so we have this queer normative society based on well, the white experience of queer. Yes. And I'm wondering, to, like, um, something I was saying earlier about Ethereum's monoculture mm-hmm. and the like, is, is some of the implications of that. Mm-hmm. Where you know, and I think, well, and I'm not saying they're sending this message deliberately. Right. Right. Just making things very clear. Um, they try, 
but they don't quite have the range. Mm-hmm. But so what it comes off as where all these differences are merely cosmetic, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Is that you know the message tends to be we can get along as way as long as the way you're different doesn't mean anything, right? Right, right. That is so well put. Or we can live in peace as long as you're normal, and by normal I mean as much like me as possible. And I'm not saying that um, that that's what uh, Noel Stevenson set out to do. I, I, I don't think that at all. Um, it's just one of those things where like, this is where the fact you don't have other people who are different yes. <laughs> in a meaningful right. way in that right. writing, mm-hmm. in, you know, in, in that creative team. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes, exactly. Agreed. So yeah. But then I kind of want to do like a fantasy thing where I was like, okay, now imagine if they did make those differences matter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, like, okay, you have, for instance, Mermista. Mm-hmm. She lives in a seaport basically, or? She lives in a sea, ki- a sea kingdom. Yeah. Yes. Her kingdom literally has like starfish and squid mm-hmm. and stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and I and I love my Mr. the Pieces because you know she's, you know she's a three dimensional character. She's got personality. Mm-hmm. We like Fuck this. Yeah, she does. We want mm-hmm. this. Okay. But at the same time, it's like okay, but what if we actually push further with that? Like, how does yeah living in that environment shape the culture? Of course. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, do they even speak English among themselves? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and how would they, it's like, at least in Star Wars, you have this thing called basic, which is the lingua franca of the Star Wars universe. Right, it's, right. It's American English, but it's right. like basic. That, that's what they call it, I think. And it's understood that this is just a language people use to communicate across difference. Yeah, it's like D&D, it's, it's not, common. Yeah. Yeah, right. it's common. It's, it's not, it'd be interesting if I said, you know, there are certain words and concepts it just doesn't exist in co- common because it's directed as a trade language so there mm-hmm. um, yeah i want to talk about D languages with you too because that sounds awesome <laughs> <laughs> so deep speech yeah let's do it no <laughs> another no, yeah. topic that i have nothing to say about. yeah we can, we can talk about that <laughs> yeah all the elves speak elvish mm-hmm. all the dwarves speak dwarvish yep. that's reasonable it makes sense but also i think there's a certain point at which we have to let it off the hook because of the fact that this is a 22-minute TVY7 cartoon. They don't right. have time to do that level of world building necessarily. So I do have right. to. I do want to speak to one thing here, in that we do see uh, one main character or one major character in a theory that does not speak English, and that's Rogelio. Mm. That's right. He's the only one. He is the only one that does but not does speak. Does he just not speak? Period. Or... No, he like he speaks. I mean, he, no, he speaks lizard squealy he speaks language. Lizard, but like you know, and Kyle, they all act like they understand and they him, all and understand they talk back him. to him in yeah. English. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I mean, and that within itself is also a a trope, b a problematic trope that all you know happens specifically within fantasies, and c I just I just love Rogelio, so I just want yeah. to say c I love. You're Rogelio. right. He's the only one who is marked as different in any meaningful way. And he is less humanoid than all the others. Mm -hmm. But one thing that I was going to say, just based on like what we're trying to get out here, is that I think very much it's the case of a theory reflects, I think, a white creative team's, you know, best ability to create like a post-racist society, utopian society, Mm -hmm. where it's like, you know, we have the goal that we want our society to be totally non-racist and everyone to be on equal footing, but we are all white in this room trying to think about it. And so the world that we can imagine is a very white fantasy version of that 
you know, multicultural utopia. Like there was a right. movie on Netflix, I think in the last year called Moxie. Did you guys see that? Mm-mm. No. The le- It's a high school where, you know, of course it's a, it's a white teenage girl who starts this awesome feminist group where there's Wait, supposed to be yes, no- yes, I did see that. Yeah, there's supposed to be no <laughs> leadership. It's a group for everyone, but she's in charge because she keeps her identity secret mm-hmm. and only her secret identity person is the one who says how things are going to be. And mm-hmm. so that could go really badly, but she manages to get like- all of her BIPOC allies and all of her queer allies and everyone who is different just jumps on board without making a fuss. And they're like, yes, this is all of our group and we're all into it. But she, you know, the white protagonist is still calling all the shots. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, right. Basically. Mm-hmm. And she's also, spoiler alert, you know, uh, she's not the one that gets in trouble for it when they inevitably get caught, right? Right, It's the, it's right. the woman so saying, of color, yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So even though it's this great... In theory, the idea of it is like, oh, look how great things could be if we all collaborated across differences to make this awesome feminist group. It's like, yeah, but that's n- there's no challenge to white hierarchical leadership mm-hmm. re- re- in reality mm-hmm. going on mm-hmm. in this narrative. She does kind of have like an Adora thing going on too, right? Like, Yeah, for sure. Except that, you know, she has she's very timid and that's the original yeah. reason that she does everything from her secret identity because right. it's the only way she can feel empowered yep. is by not letting people know that it's really her. Yep, yep. It's got a good soundtrack, though. Yes, 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 yes. Okay, since there is so much more material here than we could possibly cover in one sitting, there isn't necessarily a great stopping place, but I think this is as good as any for now. Um, And we will certainly have a lot more to say in the future. And one parting thought that I had um, as we're getting ready to say goodbye is that I want to make sure people understand that we're not necessarily just ragging on S-pop and saying, oh, these are all the ways in which it failed. These are all the ways in which it's bad. But every cultural text exists in a cultural context. And it's almost impossible to have nothing be problematic. And that's yep. okay. Yep. I think all the texts and, and you know, shows and movies and fandoms that we love, they all have problematic aspects. Mm-hmm. And the way we mm-hmm. examine them and understand them and allow, allow those discussions to play out is the most important part of that. That's Agreed. how we learn and grow. It's not about cancel culture, which I think has become more of a black and white thing. I guess if I had parting thoughts, it's like, yeah, it's it's not really true. Listeners, I, I don't waste my time on things I don't like. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's a I, joke. I dig into these things because they, you know, because it's it's often hard to start these conversations in fandom. Um, there's a lot of resistance to it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm especially to people of color saying, hey, this is how my experience of the world shapes the way I experience this piece of media. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And that could be like tough for, I guess, white people to hear or, or understand or, or make space for, um, because mm-hmm. it, after that, it immediately launches into a defense of the thing. And, and it's not about defending right. the thing necessarily. It's not even about accusing the thing of being bad. It's just, you know, I know people say this all the time. It is what it is. But like, yeah, that's the context it comes from. Understanding that context and being kind of mindful about it, not critical necessarily, but mindful. Exactly. Is, you know, to me, a more mature way of engaging with, with your, with the the media you're with is like it's, it's, you know, being a passive consumer. Where's the fun in that? You know, where's the learning and the growing exactly. happening if you're just passively consuming it and not asking questions and not digging deeper and not saying. You know, just admitting that these, the people who wrote this were, you know, people. <laughs> they, mm-hmm. So they right. have yes. 
We're all human. Yeah, they're all human. And so they have, mm-hmm. they're mm-hmm. finite. Yeah, they're finite mm-hmm. and they're and flawed. So it's like, and that shows up in the work and it's okay to acknowledge that. You don't have to mm-hmm. do the thing I saw on Tumblr like a couple, a month or two. There were like people adamantly defending H.P. Lovecraft. Why? <laughs> Sorry. Oh, you would believe that the, oh, the way they oh framed my. it was that um, he was, it wasn't racist or anti-Semitic for him to say those things about Black people and Jews because he was mentally ill and afraid of everything different. His, every single part of his work is xenophobic. Of course he's racist and anti-Semitic. The, the way they <laughs> like, kind of portray racism and anti-Semitism as a symptom of mental illness. Oh God, I, mm. yes. And that is such, Ouch. that's so, that's so something that, that is, comes in in common in conversations about these things right is that it's it's a personal ownness of being crazy he's just crazy he's racist because he's crazy right yeah. like, like um no uh, I, I, no <laughs> but i think like one of the most important points of what you're saying isn't just that what these people were saying and how they justified it but the fact that they felt so compelled to defend something yeah. Because there was a racial critique. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we often use the word critique in the academic sense. Yes. Being critical doesn't just mean being right. negative. Yes. That's like the common usage. But the academic usage of the word critical means you're doing a, a critical investigation, meaning, you know, like you're looking into these things and examining them yeah. more deeply. That's that's all it means right. in an academic and, sense. And let's yep. be frank, H.P. Lovecraft was legitimately terrible. <laughs> like yeah. a, a, a terrible person. Uh, yeah, he, he was horrible <laughs> to his wife, and she ditched him because of it. And, and, and this is in a time when, like, being a divorcee still kind of had a stigma, you know. Mm-hmm. And so, like, and, and the other, and though of course they are, like, how can he be anti-Semitic when his wife is Jewish? And it's just, oh my god, you know, and oh it's all god. that stuff. And it's like, listen, and here's the thing with the H.P. Lovecraft and the way that his works have been reclaimed and transformed. You have people of color who like the concepts he played with, not mm-hmm. so much the execution. Mm-hmm. And so, what did they do? They just, you know, they took they they took what worked and left what didn't. Mm-hmm. And and it's the best way to yeah. Move and it's like these are people of color. These are people H.P. Lovecraft would have hated, mm-hmm. hated. <laughs> That's probably part of what makes it fun to do it. Be like, fuck this guy. Yeah, uh-huh. and it's like, I hesitate yeah. to say the real fans. I don't I don't like doing that. But it's like, the people who really engage with this work and say, you know what? Yeah, he was hella racist. Hella anti-Semitic. Yeah. Wow, he was a misogynist. <laughs> and homophobic. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Yeah. every kind of bigotry, he probably hit every one of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But then they say, but you know what? I like this idea of cosmic horror. And I can use mm-hmm. this and, and leave that stuff in the dustbin where it belongs you know you leave all the mm-hmm. racism and the bigotry in the dustbin where it belongs she right. wrote leaps and bounds better than hp lovecraft <laughs> okay fuck you okay. <laughs> yes you know yeah we all love shira that's why we're here yeah but that yeah. doesn't mean that we have a totally blank uncritical right. response to every single right. aspect and it's like and it's okay to be critical it's okay okay well, if I'm going to, it's like, there's somebody probably listening right now or somebody who watched the show who wants to do something similar. And it's like, okay, mm-hmm. how can I do that, but better? 
I'm telling you. But better, mm-hmm. exactly. This is yep. how you do it. You listen to stuff like this. <laughs> yes. There. It's almost like we're doing the work of cultural yeah. evolution. Or at least we're engaging yeah. in it. I don't want to be so egocentric as to say, well, we're doing it. Ha ha. Like, we're engaging. We're giving it our yeah. best shot. It's like I'll say that we're changing the world with our podcast. I'll go out and do it. I'll say it. Fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Well, we definitely are doing that. Sure, sure. With um, the power of queer joy and queer revolution. Yes, exactly. Heck, I mean, maybe, maybe in a future one, I'll be like, okay, stuff I'm glad is not in Etheria as a person of color. I'm like, I don't have to look at trauma porn in Etheria, okay? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'm happy. I don't have to see anybody who looks like me getting whipped, sold, or abused. Yeah. Yes. As a matter of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It's certainly not like they got, we're not saying they got everything no, wrong. They didn't. <laughs> It's just a starting point to increase, and especially I feel like, and this is me just speaking as a white person, I feel like most of the, the best and most meaningful growth I've had as a queer person on the path to living an anti-racist life is situations in which I have had to become aware Mm -hmm. that I was immersed in a white bubble and that my white POV was invisibilized as being a POV of any kind, Mm -hmm. you know, having that universality Mm -hmm be questioned and have that veil drawn back and be like, oh, this isn't a universal experience. My point of view isn't the universal mm-hmm. point of view. There's people of other cultures who are seeing this from different points of view and it's going to affect them and impact them differently. Yeah, exactly. mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's yes. important. Okay, now I'm ready. To, now, now I'm wrapping up. <laughs> now, now you're wrapping okay. up. Awesome. All right. So, uh, damn, that that was fucking awesome, Sean. You yes, you. it was. Sean, you rule. <laughs> Thank I, you so much for being here with us. <laughs> Thank you. Please come back and like fucking geek out with us anytime. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'll send the character sheets. Yeah, I think Mev's gonna start cyber stalking. I really super am. I'm gonna be like, yo, can we can we talk about like more cartoons? Can we talk about D and D? Can we talk about Lovecraft Country? Like, let's do it. Oh, like, do not get me started. On LCC. I do. I am <laughs> very interested in that because I have feelings too. I have some and, things yeah, to send you. <laughs> I, I, I would love to read them and I'll send you more fan too. So. Word. <laughs> I was just sent, we were just sending shit back and forth. Um, Sean, where can our listeners find you on the internet? When I'm not hiding on my um, internet bunker called Tumblr, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, uh, you can find me at, uh, on Twitter at Project Zinzum. Which only Jewish people know how to spell. Yes, I will tell you how to spell it. (laughs) At Project Zinzum. It's uh, at P-R-O-J-E-C-T T-Z-I-M T-Z-U-M There. (laughs) Word. So I think, yeah, that's where you can find me. Probably find some of my stuff floating around on the internet ether. I don't have a website for Project Zinzum yet. (laughs) Sorry. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, folks, if you liked what you heard and you want to join us in discussion, you can like and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast fix. You can also find us on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook at HeyAdoraCast, or you can email us at HeyAdoraCast at gmail.com. We have a Patreon! Fuck yeah, we do! Fuck yeah, we do! Become a member of the Rebellion and get fantastic perks like bonus episodes your very own private Facebook group and Discord server. That's right, we started a Discord server. We heard you. Yeah, we heard you. Exclusive playlist, patron-only Zoom hangouts, and so, so much more. You can find the link to our Patreon, as well as all of our socials and playlists, in our show notes or at heyadora.gay.
That's, That's right. right. Dot gay. gay. <laughs> and remember, queer joy is radical. And queer love saves the universe.